This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and my guest today is Mayor Landers, who's a professor in the mathematics department at Los Medanos College in California. Thanks, Mayor, for being here. Thank you. We're going to be discussing Mayor's uh, recent article in Educational Studies in Mathematics, and it was entitled, Towards a Theory of Mathematics Homework as a Social Practice. Um, before we get to that article, though, Mayor, I wanted to ask you about where you did your graduate studies. Sure. Um, I graduated from the Education in Math, Science, and Technology program in the Graduate School of Education at UC Berkeley. Okay, and who'd you work with there? Um, I worked with Alan Schoenfeld. And uh, did you have an opportunity to kind of do some projects with them or go collect some data, things like that? So while I uh, was there, I was a research fellow on a project called the Diversity in Math Education Project. It was one of the Centers for Learning and Teaching from NSF, And these centers were all collaborations among multiple universities. So through the DIME project, um, we worked with uh, graduate students from Berkeley, but also UCLA and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so both through that project and through Alan's uh, research group, there was a lot of work done uh, around thinking through issues of math education and diversity and equity, But through the DIME project locally, uh, the graduate students went out into the local middle schools because one of the aspects of the project was doing professional development with the teachers. So we went into the middle schools to uh, learn about what the schools were like that the teachers were working in and also to make ourselves useful and volunteer in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. So um, instead of really doing collective research as a research group, um, the research group really functioned more as a place for individuals to bring what they were developing their interests in and working on um, for, for feedback. So at that point, the graduate students were developing individual interests um, and developing their own research rather than doing um, collective or collaborative research. Okay. And judging by the article in ESM, it um, sounds like for you, you developed an interest in homework, and so I was wondering how that kind of came about. Sure. Um, so the first year of the DIME project, um, I was working with a sixth grade teacher, and she was implementing a new curriculum. Um, it was new to her. Some of her colleagues were also using this curriculum, and she was very interested in it, but wanted support in doing it. Um, it's the CPM curriculum which is different than a standard curriculum. It has a lot of discussion and group work. And so my role in her classroom was to help implement the curriculum, be another person for the students to work with. And so when I was collaborating with this teacher, um, one of the concerns that arose for her was the issue of what happened when students went home. So they were working on problems in class, they would go home with problems for homework, and some students would come back with homework done and some wouldn't. Um, and it was frustrating uh, in, for instruction 
because she needed to move on to the next set of problems, but some students had done the work and some, and some hadn't. And so she was concerned that it was about which students had parental support at home and which ones didn't. Um, mm-hmm. And so as I was thinking about the issue at the time, I figured that that was probably an issue, but that there was more to it. And I was really starting to think about issues of students' own motivation and their sense of agency around homework. And so I actually started interviewing students that year, um, and I did some interviews for two years, and then that turned into the dissertation study where I collected more data in the third year. Mm -hmm. And we were talking um, before we started recording about how your dissertation really had theoretical and empirical components. So I was wondering if you could help us kind of connect your work from the dissertation to this article um, in ESM. So the dissertation study, um, it was a small, I worked with a small group of students at about 14 students, um, and I was really interested in what I call the role and meaning of homework in their lives. So, you know, it started with the whole idea of, well, some students are doing homework and some students are not. And that was really an oversimplification of things. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking at how some students were integrating homework into their daily routines Um, while others weren't. And for some students, that was about being inconsistent, and for some students, that was simply rejecting homework. And so as I was starting to get into uh, working with the students, doing some shadowing and interviewing, I was also developing some theoretical commitments. Um, To me, I really wanted to understand what it meant for students to be doing homework and what it meant for them. The issue of theoretical commitments, too, is also looking at issues of identity. So how do students' identities play into their homework practices? And so as I was um, afterwards working on the empirical data and building case studies, I also, um, as you can tell from the article, ended up doing some theory building about what homework is. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll get to that new theory and framework that you present in the article soon where you really delve into the students' meaning-making and their identity related to homework and then their experiences in the homework cycle. But before we get there, um, I wanted to ask you if you could kind of summarize some of the previous perspectives on homework or some of the things that you saw in past literature about how they dealt with homework. Sure. Um, I'd say that most, though not all, homework research either tacitly or explicitly defines homework as a task that teachers assign to students. Um, I believe that this definition is actually in some of Harris Cooper's early work on homework, and so a lot of studies either cite that definition or seem to be tacitly resting on that definition. And so that definition of homework um, plays into, I think, a focus of a lot of the research on homework has been, is there a relationship between homework and learning or Um, I'd say achievement as a proxy for learning, which I don't necessarily agree with personally, but I think that's what a lot is out there. So for example, there are studies, there are lots of studies that have operationalized homework into quantitative measures such as how much time students spend on homework and can we find a relationship between how much time they spend on homework and outcomes on certain achievement measures like taking a standardized test or or an assessment developed for the research. I think the results of that research is pretty telling um, because the results are all over the place. So there are some studies that have found a positive correlation, some have found a negative correlation, and some have found no correlation at all. Um, So the quantitative focus studies, they're varying quality. Some of them have gone into much more depth, 
looking at um, things uh, using like hierarchical linear modeling rather than just you know straightforward correlations. But for me, what that leaves out is there's this focus on okay, does homework work or not? Um, and work meaning if students do homework, is there some achievement outcome? And for me, this begs the question of how homework works. What is it that people are actually doing? Mm -hmm. And then it seems like you take that more broadly, too, and instead of just uh, how does it show up on test scores, also how does it seem to impact the student's identity or how they think about themselves as a math learner? Well, I'm not so much interested in just how participation in the practice of homework um, wouldn't have an impact or how it would shape students as learners. Um, I'm really interested in this dialectic between the meaning of homework and students' identities and how that together shapes students' participation in practice and then how participation in practice, but also school practice, home practices, homework practices, um, together shape students' motivation and identity. Because I think just looking at you know, specific homework time or homework practices, I think would be too limiting. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Mara Landers about her article in Educational Studies in Mathematics towards a theory of mathematics homework as a social practice. Um, so in the article, you lay out um, some nice diagrams and uh, sort of a way of conceptualizing this whole, all these issues that you've been describing. So I was wondering if you could talk us through that framework that you present. Sure. So the framework, um, I'll start by talking about this notion of homework as a social practice versus homework as a task. Um, so if we think about homework as a task, then we're saying, okay, a teacher has assigned students to do this set of problems or this worksheet or whatever it is in some artifact. And so what I'm saying is that instead of just defining homework as a task, we're talking about homework as something that people do together. And so specifically, I talk about homework as something people to do together in a cycle of contexts. So if we think about what happens in school, teachers assign students to do particular work or tasks. Sometimes, especially in, in younger grades, students might work on these tasks with teachers or with their classmates, and then they leave school. And they may work on homework at home, they may work on homework at an after-school club, they may work on homework with parents, they may do other things with family or parents around homework, like arguing about getting homework done, negotiating about getting homework done, lying and say they got their homework done. So there are all these family practices around homework, and then the cycle continues when they take the work back to school. Then there are classroom practices, such as reviewing homework, um, turning in homework, uh, evaluating homework. So the students bring, a student and the artifact travel in this cycle from school to out of school and back to school. They participate in this cycle daily over time. So students are participating in this homework cycle throughout all of their, their schooling. As they're participating in this over time, there are different people that they're, they're working with, different teachers, different classmates, family members, and so on. So within this long-term participation, um, the framework that I'm proposing has two components. So one is this idea that how people or how students participate in this practice is shaped by the meanings that they've taken ownership of with respect to homework and tightly bound with that is their identities as students. In the other direction, 
the other component is that these meanings and their identities are shaped by their participation in the practice over time. And so that's why I'm describing it as a dialectic. There's this mutual influence between meaning and identity on the one hand and participation in practice on the other. Mm -hmm. And to help uh, illustrate those ideas, you have um, two students that you present in the article, Trey and Nick. I was wondering if you could kind of talk about their experiences with homework as a way to sort of uh, illustrate the framework you're talking about. Sure. So Trey and Nick were two of the 14 students um, that I worked with for my dissertation study. Trey was a student that I'd actually worked with um, in class on a da- almost a daily basis for the three years that I worked at this middle school. He was in the first class um, that I worked with. So the first year I was there, I worked with a sixth grade teacher. Trey was in her class. For the second and third years that I was at the school, um, I worked with a different teacher who taught both seventh and eighth grade. So in a sense, I moved with this cohort of students from sixth to seventh to eighth grade, one of whom was Trey. And so in the in the article, I used Trey um, as an example of a student and his participation in the homework cycle. And I talk about Trey's case as um, the case of a student whose participation in the homework cycle was a successful one. Um, So, for example, um, I can talk about what homework meant to Trey um, and his identity as a student and how these things together supported his successful participation in the homework cycle. So, um, when I met Trey when he was in sixth grade, he was already somebody who was successful in school, specifically in math, liked math, wanted to learn math, had a mother who uh, supported him in doing well in school, insisted on homework routines, insisted that he, you know, stay after school and ask for help when he needed it. So by the time he was in sixth grade, he already had a pretty well-developed sense of I am committed to doing math homework, it's important, I need to learn this, I want to do well in school so that I can get through school, middle school, high school, to college, I want to be a professional, Um, you know, like a lot of kids, he was saying, you know, it's my dream to be a basketball player, but I want to go to college and have a job, and homework is part of that process. He saw himself as someone who was smart and capable, he also identified himself as someone who was committed to doing homework. And so seeing himself in this way and having these, attaching these meanings to homework supported him in continuing to successfully participate in the homework cycle over time. So for example, by the time he got to eighth grade, he was, you know, a popular student playing basketball, trying to do all these different things. And like any person, didn't always want to go home and sit and do hours of homework every night, but he kept doing it because of who he was and the value he attached to homework sort of for the bigger picture of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, in the other direction, thinking about how participation and practice shaped his identity and shaped the meaning of homework, for Trey there was really this coming together of his experiences in home and at school. There was this support in both directions where he was having success in school and getting to see how doing homework and studying created that success. You know, he had uh, his mother setting up homework routines for him and his brother at home. And so his experiences at school and experiences at home worked together to help him become the kind of student he saw himself as being as well as taking ownership of the value of homework. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in contrast to Trey, um, I chose in this article to present another case, 
a student, Nick, who I actually only met during the third year that I was at the school. Um, and the reason that I've chosen in this article to talk about Nick's case is because of its contrast to Trey. So when right. I started analyzing all of the case studies that I had, these two stood out because of their contrast. In a lot of ways, Trey and Nick look a lot alike. They were both uh, popular students. They were both on the basketball team. They had a lot of friends in common. They both had single mothers who were working really hard to support them. But Nick's experiences had gotten him to a place in eighth grade where he rejected homework. Um, and he did so in very clear ways. And so I used his case to illustrate what happens um, sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum. So in Nick's case, by the time he got to eighth grade, he says, I'm popular, I don't have time for homework. I'm popular, that's not what popular kids do. Um, and, he, and the thing is, Nick understood the value of homework, he just very clearly rejected it. So when we talked in interviews, he would say, well, yeah, homework, you do homework, you do well in school, you can go to college. But that's not important for me because that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a basketball player. And so the way he'd come to see himself and this idea that, well, homework, it's really not important, that allowed him to reject homework and basically um, have sort of non-participation in the homework cycle. He would come to school, he would go home, he was cycling from school to home, but for the most part, he just didn't do homework because he could reject it. He had all these really, you know, well-reasoned ideas about it. Um, mm -hmm. In the other direction, to think about how this identity and these meanings developed, he also had experiences that told him, I can think this way. I don't think he'd had that much success in school, but he had had success in the social scene. He was popular. Mm -hmm. um, he had had success in basketball. And when he looked at some, uh, I think, a family member, and when he looked at professional athletes, and he heard people say things like, oh, well, you know, you can, you can play basketball. You don't have to do well in school. Um, in high school, the teachers will just sort of pass you through if you're an athlete. He could say, look, I can do this without doing homework. I also, I should say that, you know, the, the order of influence is never clear. Um, it's entirely possible that for students like Nick, not doing well in school, it certainly doesn't feel good. It doesn't make you feel smart. Um, and so rejecting homework and academic and work in general can also be a self-protection mechanism. Um, right. But whatever it actually is, he had these well-reasoned arguments to say, I know that people value homework, but I can reject it. He also had, you know, fodder for that rejection from experiences he'd had with teachers. And this was actually a really uh, telling point for me, something that really made me think as a teacher. Um, he said, look, I, I, I don't think teachers care if you copy homework. It just shows them you have a way of getting it done. He said, you could do a half job. You can just write stuff down and, and they'll take it. And I think this was his interpretation of a pretty common practice um, where teachers want to give students credit for effort. Um, so if we want to give them credit for effort and having written something down, unfortunately that can get interpreted as that the teachers don't care about the quality of the work. Hmm. So these two cases are, are contrasting what, it, what successful participation in this homework cycle looks like versus unsuccessful. And so I think something that is important to think about there is that part of this is how students are positioned in this process. 
Um, and this really started to make me think about how the whole practice of homework will necessarily position some students as successful and some as unsuccessful. And I know some, some researchers and some educators might use that as a reason to say, well, there shouldn't be homework. To me, it's reason to say, we need to look at how we're doing things. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting how you've you know, brought these different ideas and different aspects of homework into dialogue with each other. And I will again refer the listener to the printed article because you have some nice diagrams and you use Trey and Nick um, to kind of illustrate how those diagrams can be useful a sort of visual way of thinking about how these things interact. But, uh, Mara, I also want to ask you about your sort of next steps or some future work that you're doing, and it may be homework-related or there may be some other things that you're interested in math education. Sure. So, to me, the, the purpose of presenting a theoretical framework is um, to give myself or anyone interested in a framework something to think about how we're asking questions and how we're looking at homework. So, for example, this might shape how we think about homework and other subjects. Um, for me, sort of the practical implications, this has actually really shaped how I look at homework as a teacher. So the example I gave from Nick's data about, um, you know, if teachers just give you credit for the work they give you, credit for trying, then you can just write anything down, um, has really made me think very deeply about the role of homework feedback and about the messages that you give. So for example, one of the things that I tell people all the time when they ask me about this stuff is don't give homework um, as punishment. You know, I see it in mm -hmm. pop culture and TV and movies, and I see, you know, references to things here and there, you know, well, if you don't behave, we're gonna give you more homework. And so that puts out the message that homework is punishment. Um, yeah. So it's really shaped my thinking about um, the messages that we give as homework uh, about homework. It's also shaped my thinking about we really have to think about what our practices are around homework. So you know, if we take this perspective that homework is something that people do together, then we have to think about the role of the teacher. So one of the things I've done is some professional development with my colleagues, where we look at practices, um, our practices related to homework. So we've worked on some. Uh, what we call setup practices. How do we do things in class that set, set up students to leave class and successfully complete their assignments? So I teach in a context where we use um, a, like a homegrown curriculum instead of traditional textbooks for the most part, and we give pretty in-depth problem-solving assignments. So you know, students don't have a textbook to flip back to to look at an example to compare to, say, some homework exercises. So um, we've done some work around implementing setup practices. Um, one of my colleagues introduced this to um, a professional development group. Um, this practice of having the students in class preview their assignment and look back and connect it to the classwork that they've done so mm -hmm. they can use their own work as a resource. Mm -hmm. um, and as, as I've started to do that with my own students, I've seen them take advantage of it. Um, so instead of you know throwing up their hands, they can say, oh, I can look back to this work I did in class and use my own work as a homework resource. We've also talked about some feedback practices, um, and this has parlayed into um, sort of a design study that I've been doing. Um, I've been working with intermediate algebra students, working on creating a structure for um, reflecting on their homework feedback. So really what I'm trying to do is engage students in assessment 
that's not just me assessing them or them assessing themselves, but us doing this together. So I've been working for several semesters where I have students participate in an ongoing reflection process where they take their graded work and they're assessing themselves and talking about what resources they use and what they can improve on. Um, and I've been working on that for several semesters. With each semester, I'm trying to sort of streamline the process and um, build in more opportunities for um, revision of work, which I think is an important part of the feedback loop is to receive feedback, reflect on it, and then be able to revise work. Mm -hmm. I'm also now moving in a direction um, research-wise where I'm trying to look at some things that aren't homework related. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I've found really challenging is that the homework literature is really vast and really varied. There's a lot of academic work, there's a lot of stuff out there in pop culture, there's sort of this war of, you know, homework works, no it doesn't, we should abolish homework, and I'm not sure that I want to stay in that area long term, even though um, I'm definitely interested in pursuing this classroom-based research that I'm working on now to think about really engaging students with their homework feedback. So um, right now I'm working on developing a study. Um, I'm looking at how community college math faculty have developed their own particular perspectives and practices for teaching in general. And so this, this has really been motivated by um, my desire to understand how some very experienced teachers who necessarily started out as traditionalists, um, meaning, you know, math teacher comes into the room and stands at the board and delivers a lecture, um, how they've really changed over time and gone from a philosophy and practice um, of that traditional nature to what I would call uh, philosophy and practice in line with math reform, where they come to believe in the need for students to be problem solving and constructing their own knowledge um, and how that's parlayed into very different teaching practices than where they started their careers. Mm -hmm. My guest is Mira Landers from Los Medanos College in California. Um, and Mira, I have one more question before I let you sure. go, and it's a question sure. I ask everybody. Uh, it's basically just to imagine an alternative, uh, alternative reality where you aren't in math education. I was wondering if you could see yourself doing anything else. You know, when I was young, I had some different ideas. Um, I was never one of those kids who said, I'm going to grow up and become a teacher or an mm -hmm. educator. Um, mm -hmm. And so there were times when I was young um, when I did some youth leadership work and I thought about um, going into psychology and maybe substance abuse counseling. Um, so that was something I seriously considered when I was young. Mm -hmm. um, more recently, I thought, well, if I were in a different line of work, maybe I'd be a therapist. And one of the reasons I've thought that is because people like to tell me things. Um, so <laughs> I, I meet strangers and they want to tell me things. And um, that may be, you know, sometimes people like to talk to strangers, it's cathartic. But um, so that's made me think that might be um, in, a, in an alternate universe or in a different career, that's uh, what I'd be doing. I, I've often thought if money were an object, if I didn't need to go out and earn a paycheck, um, I think it would be really fulfilling to be an artist. Um, I actually come from a family of artists and I've always loved to uh, draw and paint. I love creating murals. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if I, I, I know the life of an artist is challenging, especially in terms of, you know, getting your work shown and making a living. So that's why I say if money were no object, um, mm-hmm. I think that would be a really fulfilling life. Yeah. I'm just thinking too, it's, uh, we could have our first podcast challenge, which would be, um, the next time somebody runs into you at a conference, they can just come up and tell you something surprising from their past. Uh, you do, I don't think you need to have a challenge. Uh, I've had people, it just happens whether I'm riding the train or I'll tell you, it's happened on job interviews when someone's interviewing me and then they tell me about their, their personal life. I don't Mm. know. I don't know what it is. I think it might be my face, which you can't see. So you can't uh, judge, but, uh, people like to tell me things. So, um, you know, maybe I should be doing the interviews. (laughs) Mara, thanks so much for talking about your work with us. Sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.